feel in this story, I'm, I'm just a little like Alice in Wonderland. I went through the, the little door and it's just opened up into this whole like, wow. I just wanted to buy a painting, really. That's Bare Naked Ladies musician Kevin Hearn appearing in the documentary, There Are No Fakes. And that documentary was about the multi-million dollar forgery ring targeting the iconic First Nations artist, Norvell Morisot. Kevin's our guest on our Akamema podcast. Danse, tawau, and welcome to the Akamemuk Podcast. I'm your host, Perry Belgard. Akamemuk is a Plains Cree word for you all persevere, or in other words, let's keep going and don't give up. So on this podcast, we discuss the leading issues facing First Nations peoples with top experts, with elders, and community leaders. And today, we're diving into the art world with Kevin Hearn. You know him as a member of the Bare Naked Ladies. One of the biggest Canadian bands of all time. As well as being an international rock star, Kevin Hearn collects art. And one day in Toronto, he went into a gallery and bought a painting by Norval Morisot, a world-famous Ojibwe artist whose work he loves and we all love. It turns out that that painting was a fake. Kevin Hearn's effort to get his money back turned into the largest art fraud lawsuit in Canadian history. And it wound up unearthing a multi-million dollar forgery ring targeting collectors of Morso's work. The documentary entitled There Are No Fakes tells the story of Kevin Hearn's journey into the bizarre, comical, and heartbreaking world surrounding Morso forgeries. Norval Morisot has huge significance. He's the first contemporary Indigenous art star. But there were people who have been poisoning Morisot's legacy. If you have a Norval Morisot, it's a real Norval Morisot, and there are no fakes out there. This is my culture, my heritage, being native. Total disrespect, disregard for anything. It was featured at the Hot Docs Festival in Toronto and is available to view for free on TV Ontario at tvo.org. Mr. Kevin Hearn, a great big welcome to our Akamema podcast. Hello, Buzu. It's really good to be with you, Kevin. And this very important documentary, and I watched it, very interesting, very intriguing, exciting, and and it starts out with you buying what you thought was an original Norval Morisot painting. Now, for those of you that don't know Norval Morisot's art, Kevin, can you tell us about Norval Morisot and why you wanted a Norval Morisot original piece of artwork for your collection? I'd loved his work since I first saw a photo of one of his paintings in the Globe and Mail when I was around... Uh, 12 years old. Uh, a few years later, I got a record by Bruce Coburn called Dancing in the Dragon's Jaws, which featured uh, one of Norval's paintings on the front cover. And again, I, I just always loved and respected his work. And when the band had some success in the late 90s, I started getting this idea that perhaps I could, I could 
you know, buy one of his paintings and have it in my home because I, I really feel that having an, an artist's original work is like sort of having some of their spirit and energy around you. And, um, learning more about Norval and reading his interviews, he, he considered himself a shaman Mm -hmm. and he could, he considered his work to have healing qualities. He liked to heal people through his colors. And I really love that idea. And I think his work was important in a sense that he, uh, he was very groundbreaking and, uh, kind of in the music world, you hear about Bob Dylan going electric and mm-hmm. and how controversial that was. Well, I think for Norval to be taking the stories of his uh, his people and his that he learned from his grandfather and and putting them into works of art was was very groundbreaking and controversial at the time. And from what I understand, Perry, there's three major strains of uh, indigenous art. Uh, there's coastal, there's Inuit art, and there's the Woodland School of Art, which Norval is considered to be the founder of. And when you see that style, it's very familiar. It's very colorful, usually with um, thick black lines. And often you can see sort of an x-ray vision of creatures and people in the paintings. And uh, I believe that's some of the reasons why he's so important. So, Norval Morisot, you thought you were buying an original piece of artwork, and how did you discover that the painting was fake? And and let's start talking and building up towards this documentary, you know, this, uh, there are no fakes. Uh, Tell us that story, tell us that, how did that all begin? Because it was, like, to the listeners, you have to watch that documentary, because it's very powerful. But we are going to start the dialogue here. So, Kevin, I'm just going to turn it all over to you, and I'm just going to listen. Okay, just just tell me to stop if I ramble too much. But it's a long story, okay. <laughs> you know. I know. We'll hit the high points. Okay. We'll hit the high points. Um, you know, I was reading online because I thought, oh, I wonder where I could look to, to buy a painting. And I started seeing little warnings like, be careful where you buy. Make sure you buy from a gallery. There is an issue with fakes. Um with Norval Morisot's artwork. So I was in Yorkville and there was a gallery called Maslach McLeod Gallery and I went in and met the owner, Joe McLeod, and he was very friendly and told me that he knew Norval and that he represented some of Norval's sons as artists. And to your last question about the work um, appreciating and value after an artist's passing, he did say to me, he goes, now is a great time to buy because Norval isn't doing well and soon these prices are all going to skyrocket, you know, like Mm -hmm. that's not why I was buying one of his paintings. It wasn't a business investment, you know, it was, I really wanted the work. Just the love of art. It was a spiritual piece for you. It was healing powers and he's just... Yeah, exactly. He's a great artist. Yeah. And so, you know, Joe, he had some very expensive paintings, but he said, I have lots more upstairs. So we went upstairs and he started pulling out these paintings. And uh, we chose one that uh, he showed me the back of it. And there was a drawing of a Thunderbird on the back. And he said, whenever Norval drew this Thunderbird, it meant he really liked that, that painting. And, uh, of course, uh, wow, that's really cool. And uh, it was signed on the back as well. 
Now, at the time, I didn't realize that was a very controversial thing, the signature on the back, and it was mm-hmm. considered a red flag uh, went concerning the authenticity of his paintings. Anyhow, I'd had the painting. I bought it in 2005. In 2010, I was invited by the AGO, the Art Gallery of Ontario, to guest curate a show for their sales and rental department. And we had a big show, and I, we hung my Morriso that I bought on the wall. And uh, I got a call a few days later, uh, and the lady who was running the show, Jennifer, she said, Kevin, we had to take your your Norval Morriso painting down. Um, Gerald McMaster thinks there's some problems with it, um, and it 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 might be a fake a fake painting. So that was the the first chapter. <laughs> so basically, you bought the painting in 2005 from the McLeod Gallery Art Gallery, yeah. and then you had it publicly shown in 2010, five mm-hmm. years later, and uh, and Gerald McMaster, who's again a world-renowned uh, um, artist and as well curator uh, said hey there could be some problems with this who owns this piece of work and we, we don't think we, sh- we should b- be publicly showing it right right so that's where the red flag started and so that whetted your appetite what did you do next I got an email from uh, a guy named Richie Sinclair and he said I saw that your painting got taken down you're probably upset if you'd like to know more um, let's meet for a coffee uh, so I did meet with him, and he uh, he sort of told me uh, a, more about the issue of fakes. And I started learning about the situation. And then I met Gerald McMaster, and he said, you know, Kevin, I, I know Morisot's work, and I don't see the strokes of the master. And, um, you know, I'm a public servant, and so it's my duty to make sure we're showing something that's true and real. And... Uh, so, and then I went and met Joe McLeod and he, uh, you know, the things he said to me, he said, you know, I can't give you your money back or that'll result in the closing of my gallery. I want a letter of apology from the AGO saying they had no reason to take it down and that will act as authentication of your painting. Or I want a letter saying they took it down because they think it's a fake, in which case I'll sue them. And, uh. I said, well, Joe, what does that have to do with me? I'm your customer. Like, just how can you reassure me that it's real? Why don't we team up, do all the tests we can, look at the provenance of the painting, and just prove that it's real? And he said, I'm, I, I'm not going to do that. I can't do that. And um, he said a few other things that I won't repeat. But I basically walked out of the gallery thinking, okay, I'm on my own here. And that was really weird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I either got to walk away right now or I've got to go on a journey to try to find out what the actual truth is. When, when did you say, okay, I got to get legal counsel involved? I'd, I'd learned about the NMHS, the Norval Morriso Heritage Society, which was a group of scholars, uh, art historians and lawyers that Norval had assembled with the um, specific purpose of, you know, making a documenting which of his paintings were real and which weren't and sort of trying to clear up the problem. And so I contacted a lawyer from the NMHS named Richard Baker 
and I met with him, and he had been Norval's lawyer for many years, and he wanted to help me, and he started to help me um, as a lawyer, but but then he said, Kevin, I, we, we think that it might be a conflict of interest for the NMHS to legal, legally represent you, and we'd like to introduce you to someone named Jonathan Summer. And Jonathan was a lawyer who was representing a school teacher named Maggie Hatfield, who had also bought a fake painting, and she was in the process of litigation. And so I, I met Jonathan, and that's how that relationship began, and that's how I began working to try to find more evidence and to try to find the truth. So you, you started getting into some resistance earlier on from some of the, the art galleries and some of the people, um, you know, to, because they were defending that, oh, there's no such thing as fake Norval Morisos, you know, they're they're all legitimate because, of course, it's a multi, you know, million dollar industry almost, you know, and and so there was some resistance. What did that teach you about the world of art collecting? Oh, uh, it was terrifying. It was it was vicious, and buying a painting or a work of art for anybody, it's a in itself a beautiful thing, you know, and it, it should be that. But there's a whole business surrounding it, and there's a lot of uh, a lot of corruption in that business, is, is what I've learned. And you know, mm-hmm. from the get-go, Joe McLeod's lawyer Brian Schiller, he, he came out in an interview and said, you know, Kevin has no proof that there's a fraud ring, and he's accused my client of of being involved in a fraud ring or connected to it. And if he can't prove it, we're going to come after him. You know, so all of a sudden I was like, whoa, you know, and then people started posting things about me online and kind of attacking me and all the way through the journey, you know, people were harassing my expert witness, Carmen Robertson, and um, it was scary. In this documentary, there was a lot of evidence and proof that there indeed was a fraud ring. And it involved, there's so many players involved from, um, and I'll just throw some names out there. You know, Benji Morso, who is uh, Norval Morso's nephew. Yes. I believe. And then a gentleman named Mr. Gary Lamont, who's kind of the brains behind everything, who lived in Thunder Bay. Um, and, and there's a whole scenario between how they, they, they manufactured uh, these fake Norval Morso prints. And I want to know from your perspective, because you're right involved, there are so many odd characters and, and moments in this story, highs and lows and, and dark sides and, and laughter and bright sides and key characters and key players. But what, where was there a moment that really left you feeling that, holy smokes, you walked into some very, very crazy, bizarre universe here regarding this fraud ring regarding Norval Morso paintings? Was there something that said, holy smokes, this is really weird and screwed up. What was that moment for you? You know, I came to realize I wasn't just in a lawsuit with Joe and his gallery. I was up against a whole network of people. And there was a organized effort to fight me on this. And my lawyer and I, we kind of referred to this case as the Kraken. You know that mythic creature with all the tentacles because we Mm -hmm. found as soon as we uh, address one issue another 
tentacle would come out <laughs> and there was just so many so many things so many lies to disprove so many leads to follow so many stones to uh, overturn and it was mind-boggling and all the while Perry I was committed to a promise that if 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 I was proven to be wrong and that it was real and I would I would apologize but everything mm-hmm. I learned was sh- was showing otherwise but I didn't have any real proof that I was right um, anything totally concrete until I was contacted by uh, a young man named Dallas Thompson for me he's the hero uh, of, of the documentary one of them but he was he had been working in the fraud ring as a teenager delivering paintings uh, setting up meetings um, managing the website that was selling the paintings he was working for a man named Gary Lamont who had yeah. um, you know tragically sexually abused him and he was planning to have revenge on Gary Lamont and thought about killing him. Mm-hmm. But he was advised by a, a counselor who said, you know, you're throwing your life away if you do that. Why don't you, why don't we contact this fellow Kevin Hearn and work, work together? And so I met Dallas in a restaurant here on Queen Street called the Swan Restaurant. And he told me his story, and I was crying. We left the restaurant and hugged outside the restaurant. And none of this is not in the documentary, but we hugged, and I said, we're going to get through this together. And he was one of the, the friends I made along the way, and someone who was mm-hmm. very brave, uh, actually put his life on the line to, to come and testify in court. In the documentary, it really comes out like he is indeed a hero. Um, same with Carmen and um, same with you, Kevin. You're a hero for doing all of this as well. Um, it's a very powerful story. And so when Dallas was telling his story, it goes back to Thunder Bay where a lot of it really began, right? And yeah. It's almost like ground zero for the Morso forgery ring. Like in Thunder Bay, then there's also this cabin by the lake, you know, and this other thing. Can you just share a little bit about that with the listeners? Uh, sure. Well... Gary Lamont is well known as a drug dealer in Thunder Bay, and he had a cottage um, outside of Thunder Bay. And Dallas talks about this in the film, but uh, it sort of acted as a, a hiding place for the drugs, and and it acted as a, a studio as well, apparently for Benji Morriso. And um, but uh, there were other victims of Gary's that would. Um, other indigenous young men who would leave their communities and come to Thunder Bay um, to continue their education, and they they were invited as boarding as boarders, and they were all some of them were also abused. You know, um, after Dallas came forward, many other victims came forward. There was a lot. It went way beyond art fraud. You know, and so my mm-hmm. whole purpose. Uh, you, you said earlier that I'd been awarded money in my lawsuit, but the truth is I never recovered a penny, and it was never about that for me. It really was about trying to do uh, the right thing. And 
So after years of many efforts, and uh, uh, you lost your first lawsuit, right? Yes. And yeah. the judge couldn't make a determination on your first lawsuit uh, as to the uh, uh, authentication. Authentif- yeah, authentication. Yeah, authentication. Authenticity the right of your painting. Authenticity. Yeah. Yes. There you go. Kikwayoma authenticity in Korea. What is this authenticity? But he could make a determination on that. So you'd say you lost your first case, right? Yeah, but within but then that on appeal, within that loss, there was a big victory in that the judge agreed that I had proven there was a fraud ring. Um, the mm-hmm. the metaphor that uh, you know me and my team came up with is that the judge was willing to say that yes, there is a poisonous tree here with poisonous fruit, but this piece of fruit right under the tree, he's not willing to say that it's poisonous for sure. Do you know what I mean? So although mm-hmm. he didn't specifically say my painting was fake, he, w- he agreed that there was a whole lot of, there was an issue. So, so there was hope in the first ruling there was on hope. that piece. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, that whole process, getting to the court and the trial, it took years and years. And we were so upset that we lost. And people were asking me, well, are you going to appeal? And I was like, I don't know if I have the strength. You know, this took everything out of me. And uh, a lawyer friend of mine said, Kevin, if you don't appeal, you'll wonder for the rest of your life. And I knew the judgment wasn't right, so I did appeal, and then I won in the appeal court. How many years did it take from start to finish, starting your first lawsuit and then to your victory on your second one? How many years did that take? Uh, Well, 2010 was, as we talked about, and then I think the trial was in 2017. And then the film, um, you know, came out, and at the end of the first cut of the film, it says I lost, which is where things were at when the film came out. But then I went to the appeal court and won. So a new cut of the film was released that uh, says in a groundbreaking decision, the appeal court overturned the initial ruling. And what year was that? 2018. So almost like almost like a, a 13, 14 year journey because you bought the painting in 2005. And yeah. then in 2010, at the art show, you pulled it down. So then from 2010 until 2018, approximate. Yeah. You know, an eight-year journey almost. Yeah. And uh, there's there's more, know. Perry. You know, the, the film was the catalyst yeah. for a reopened investigation by the police. And uh, mm-hmm. it's not the end of the story. Tell us more about that. Sure. I was on tour, and I got a call from a detective in Thunder Bay. And he told me that he'd heard about the movie and he needed to see it. And so I had a copy of the film sent to him. And shortly thereafter, they opened an investigation into the whole fraud situation. And um, I have been working with the police whenever they need me to. And um, they can't tell me everything, but there has been a lot of progress made. They've they've interviewed a lot of people and... uh, you can expect to hear more. So what we've learned, and, I, and I have, I've watched the documentary, and there are no fakes. And what you learned is that, uh, yeah, the fakes, Nor- the Norval Morrisville fakes, uh, the original ones don't have the, uh, the signature on the back, you know? They don't have that signature on the back. 
and um, correct the drawing of the Thunderbird on the back. They don't have that on the back. The original ones. They they the original Novel Morsos have the um, the syllabics right on and, the front, uh, which refer yeah on the front, and that yeah. refers to his name, Copper Thunderbird. Correct. That's so so. Anything with on the back, mm, red flags automatically come up. That comes out pretty clear in the uh, in the documentary. Yeah, and I think one of the the hopes for this uh, investigation and all of this is that we will eventually sort of clear some of this muddiness and really bring back Norval's legacy and protect it mm-hmm. because he is such an important and great artist. Well, that's really what it's all about, you know, because like in the closing line of the documentary, you just said, I just wanted to buy a painting. And yeah. <laughs> because Norval Morso is one of our heroes. He was so gifted and so talented, so spiritual. Um, so where does this story now stand, like in terms of the criminal investigations and the legacy of Norval Morso from your per- perspective? Can you make some comments on that? Sure. Well, we're th- there is the art perspective, but there's also the, um, the social perspective. Uh, you know, when we learn of the news as we learned, you know, in the last few weeks about residential schools uh, and their, what they're, they're finding. And when you look at what we looked at in the film, where there's, there's young men who are leaving their communities just to further their education and they're being mm-hmm. preyed upon, there's a, a real connection and it really illuminates that these pro- problems continue and man and in different ways and so i think as we all try to work towards uh truth and reconciliation and it's hard work and it's going to take a long time and commitment that all of these stories are important and they need to be heard as difficult as they are and that is my hope that that continues and that friendships and teamwork that i felt with um you know dallas thompson and and other indigenous friends that i made along the way can act as an example and and can continue in other ways well kevin you're a gifted musician and an artist and songwriter and i know my partner valerie and i went up to old crow vantat gwichin territory for new year's uh-huh. and uh, i realized there was a collaboration between you and val on a song you guys were writing and what are your thoughts on the collaboration there before we get to the issue and question on hope can you share, what can you share about the song that you're 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 writing with Val? Uh, she wrote the lyrics. It's a it's called "Feet Like Feathers," and it's a beautiful poetic like lyrics. Uh, we have done a, a little demo of it, but it needs a bridge, and <laughs> I've been waiting for the bridge for uh, about a year. <laughs> Okay, well, that's a work in progress. So the listeners, that's a work in progress. So you guys can continue working on the bridge together. Okay. But uh, moving from that one, Kevin, I want to, um, I always ask my guests on the podcast because this is such a tremendous story, you know, and, and you're, you indeed are a hero too. Dallas is a hero in the documentary. Carmen's a hero for having the strength and the courage to come forward with their truth and their story uh, about this this fraud ring regarding the fake Morriso paintings but you're a you're you're a hero for standing up and not giving up to seek the truth because it's a spiritual truth in that way too and and now in Canada with the residential schools and 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 in light of COVID-19 and all the challenges we have in Canada what gives you hope 
What Gives Me Hope? Well, Perry, uh, Bruce Coburn has a song called Lovers in a Dangerous Time, and there's a lyric in that song that was my motto through this whole story, and it is, you've got to keep kicking at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. And I think with all the conversations happening and people standing up for each other more and more in our communities, I think that's what we're doing as individuals and together. Uh, We're kicking at the darkness till it bleeds daylight. We just got to keep doing it. Hmm. And that gives me hope. And that's a a very powerful message to end our, our dialogue on, Kevin. Kevin Hearn, thank you so much for your leadership and your commitment to seek truth and justice regarding the, the, the fake fraud ring of the Norval Morsos. You're a strong leader in so many regards and a gifted artist. Thank you so much for coming on our Akamigma podcast. Thanks. And I want to thank all the people for listening to the Akamigma podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. Give us a rating. And tell your friends about us on social media. After a break over the summer, we'll be back with new episodes in the fall. We look forward to continuing these conversations with you when we get back. The Akamemuk Podcast is produced by David McGuffin of Explore Podcast Productions. And our theme music is provided by the Red Dog Singers, Treaty 4 Territory, Southern Saskatchewan. Until next time, I'm Perry Bellgarden.